my most loving pranams at Bhagwan's Lotus Feet. Dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series, A Triune Pilgrimage, a journey that we do together. And as I've said many times before, yes, this is an exposition on the Gita, but it is not an expertly one because as I've mentioned, I too am a person who is reading this for the first time and I've requested the joy of all of your company in this journey and I'm very grateful to all of you for joining me and grateful to Swami of course for giving us all this opportunity. In this series we take up the Bhagavad Gita verse by verse. We do not leave out any verse. I give you the meaning for that and then we discuss about what that verse is all about. We've just completed the first chapter in the Bhagavad Gita. The first chapter is called the Arjuna Vishada Yoga which is the despondency of Arjuna being expressed to Lord Krishna. And Krishna patiently listens to that and we begin the second chapter today. The second chapter is called Sankhya Yoga or the Yoga of Knowledge. It's an important chapter and the reason why it is important, apart from the fact that it speaks of the highest wisdom is, this is the chapter where Arjuna literally accepts Krishna as his guru and Krishna accepts Arjuna as his disciple and the true discourse of Krishna begins in this chapter and that's why this is the most important chapter in that sense from the point of view of this conversation between the Lord and his devotee. We'll probably start with a short summary of what we covered in the last episode. It was the final lap of the second chapter. Arjuna continued his argument and he explains in the course of that how women are the final frontier when it comes to the protection of dharma. And of course Arjuna participating in the war will not be harming the women directly or in fact he wouldn't be harming even dharma directly. But he says that if he were to participate in the war, he would create an atmosphere of chaos. And in that chaos, there will be what he refers to as intermingling of castes and intermingling of kulas. And the children born of such an atmosphere will not be in a position to honor tradition and dharmic practices. And they will not perform the obsequies that they have to do for their ancestors is another point that he makes. So the one who causes such confusion of in a large scale, it is not just confusion in one family, it is not a depression or a sad event in one family. This is in the entire 
subcontinent all of the kingdoms have assembled here either the main kings or the princes or representatives from all kingdoms have assembled in this battle and so he says that participating in a war such as this is going to create mammoth chaos and confusion in society and he says the one who causes such confusion and the ones who are born of such confusion and the ancestors of all these people all will suffer and that's the big argument that arjuna is placing in front of krishna and thinking of all of this arjuna is wondering how did we get to this place how did we even think that we could come and participate in a war like this and fight and kill these people who are my own people and cause all of this confusion where did our sense of propriety and dharma go that's what arjuna is asking he's saying that why didn't we think of all of this before and you know why didn't it occur to me before that's what he says in that penultimate verse and finally he puts down his gandiva and the bows and arrows he puts them down and he slumps into his chair and that is the scene which finally in the last verse sanjaya describes to dhridrashtra and uh, swami writes so beautifully that at that moment dhridrashtra was so joyous that gave him a sense of hope that he thought that what has happened that arjuna is withdrawing from the battle that means a huge advantage for the kauravas it could even mean victory for them but swami says that that is the sad plight of a person who is misguided because as we went through last week some of the arguments which arjuna gives are so profound yes they are coming out of delusion as we will see yes krishna does not approve of them but nevertheless they are very very beautiful arguments and they are a beautiful portrait of how dharma can be established and protected in a society and if any person who has a little bit of sensible understanding or goodness in approach would listen to that and say that wow this is exactly how we need to go about living in society how we have to go about protecting society and this entire discourse is being heard by dhridrashtra through sanjaya but nothing moves in him at least now he can get up and say that let's put an end to this war because so beautifully this young member of my family arjuna who is supposed to be like my son he is giving this beautiful explanation of how this war is going to lead to a wholesale destruction of dharma and he says that the one who causes such confusion will go to hell and who is the cause for this entire thing it is dhritarashtra had he been a person of straightforwardness had he been a person of genuine goodness he would have reacted in that way but on the other hand he reacts with happiness he's saying that oh is arjuna going to withdraw from the battle that seems to be a good news which is coming my way but uh, sanjaya continues with his description he says that don't be hasty o lord the conversation continues and that's where the second chapter begins where sanjaya once again gives a very brief description of the plight of arjuna and then what does krishna say for the first time krishna is going to speak of course krishna speaks one of the verses in the first chapter is where krishna says that o arjuna i brought the chariot to the center of the battlefield as you asked and see here are the people who have come to fight against you that's the only verse in the first chapter where krishna speaks but here krishna is going to speak and krishna is going to direct he is going to give his upadesha it is going to begin in this chapter but the first verse as i said the first verse of the second chapter is in the words of sanjaya because let us keep in mind the entire thing is as narrated or as related by sanjaya to his king dhritarashtra so we we'll listen to the 
first verse of the second chapter and I'll give you the meaning and we'll talk about it. As always, it is being rendered by Brother Sham, an alumnus of our university, a contributor to Radio Sai. He's been a part of our Vedam Tutor on many, many occasions and very active member of the Sai organization. Very grateful to him for giving us this beautiful rendition of the Bhagavad Gita very, very clearly so we can understand each word as he is chanting it for us. Over now to Brother Sham, we'll listen to his rendition of the first verse of the second chapter and I'll give you the meaning and the discussion will continue after that. Sanjaya Uvacha Tanthatha Kripaya Vishtam Ashrupurna Kulekshanam Vishidantamidam Vakyam Uvacha Madhusudanaha To him who was sad and thus overwhelmed by compassion, whose eyes were filled with tears and showed distress, Krishna spoke these words. As I said, a brief description of what is Arjuna's plight. And for one full chapter, Krishna listens patiently. Krishna knows everything. Krishna knows exactly what is going on in Arjuna's mind, but he still listens. And if we were to talk about our abilities to listen, we don't know what the other person is going through when we are in a conversation with another person, but still we don't listen. How sad is that? So if Krishna knows everything, Krishna is the Antaryami, he is the indweller of each one. He knows everything, he knows every thought that crosses through every person, he knows completely well what is going on in Arjuna's mind. But still Krishna listens. But still Krishna listens for an entire chapter, allows Arjuna to pour out whatever is in his mind. So why is he listening to Arjuna in spite of knowing everything? Isn't it a sign that speaking out is actually helping Arjuna and that is why Krishna is allowing him to pour out? This is a very important point that I think we all can keep in mind. Yes, we listen to know, but we must also listen to give an opportunity to the other person to express himself or herself. Most often the other person's learning happens in the process of expression itself. And I'm sure that is the case with Arjuna too. In the process of explaining whatever he had to say, as we said, some of the arguments that he gave are very, very profound. It's not uh, anything uh, substandard or faulty in that sense. So he might himself would have come up with a lot of clarifications in the process of explaining that to Krishna. And that is why Krishna gives him that opportunity. And he says, I'm giving you this opportunity to express, not because I want to know what is in your mind, because I want you to express. And I'm sure many are listening probably to the show like that. Not that you don't know what the Gita is about and you need to learn from me or you need to hear an explanation from me. But when you listen, I guess it gives me the opportunity to express maybe and in the process learn. And that's precisely the reason why I said I'm going to do this program. I consider this as Swadhyaya, my personal study and I requested all of you to join me in that and I'm very, very grateful to you as I said in the beginning. But let's come back to Krishna and Arjuna. As we saw in the last chapter, Arjuna gave some brilliant arguments. Just to list a few, he says, how can I kill these people? They're all my people. If I happen to win, the very people with whom I would have liked to share this joy and celebrate this victory, they all would have died. And then he says, the earthly kingdom seems too small a reward 
for which I can participate in this fight and kill all of these people. And then, of course, the many points which I mentioned in the summary when we started off, which were the verses we covered last time. So all of these are the arguments, brilliant arguments, foolproof arguments, so it appears that Arjuna gives to Krishna. After giving all these arguments, Arjuna finally sinks to his seat. Kripaya Vishtam, overwhelmed by compassion. And then Sanjaya describes Ashrupurna Akulekshanam. Depressed eyes were brimming with tears. That is the description he says. Akulekshanam means depressed eyes and Ashrupurnam, filled with tears. This really speaks of Arjuna's nature. This was not a drama that he was doing or this was not an ordinary kind of weakness really or a fear that what will happen if I participate in this war and get killed. It is not that kind of a weakness. Arjuna by nature was a very, very sensitive person. Yes, he was a great warrior, he was brave, he was dynamic and all of that. But at the same time, he was a very, very sensitive person. And that is one of the reasons why among the Pandavas, he is the one who is actually interested in fine arts like music and dance, even though he's a great warrior, even though he's a very manly and brave person, he still is interested in fine arts because internally he's a very, very sensitive person, very soft-natured person. So he genuinely breaks down. That's why he, Sanjaya says that his eyes are depressed and it's brimming with tears. You don't cry without reason. Unless you're truly overwhelmed, you will not be sinking to your chair with tears streaming from your eyes. But in spite of all this goodness and sincerity that Arjuna is expressing here, what he is doing is certainly wrong. Why is he philosophically wrong? Well, that is going to be the theme of the Gita. That is what Arjuna is going to learn from Krishna. And that is probably the main body of the Bhagavad Gita's philosophy itself. But Arjuna is wrong for another reason, specifically, a specific reason why Arjuna in this place is wrong. Who has been at the forefront of all the negotiations that have eventually led to the war? Who has agreed to be on their side and who has driven Arjuna in a chariot right to the centre of the battlefield now? It is God himself. And will the Supreme Lord ever instruct one to do something which is adharmic, unrighteous or wrong? That is the fact that Arjuna is forgetting. In a Prashantinilyam, there used to be a very, very unique practice. I don't know if it's, there's an equivalent of that in any other place. Swami students, some of them, after they finish their courses, there will always be some people who would want to serve Swami's institutions, stay back. And as a matter of extending their stay with Swami or dedicating their lives to Swami's service, whichever way they look at it. And after they finish their courses, they would wait for Swami's instructions either to work somewhere or Swami to come and say that, all right, you carry on and you work and stay in your uh, uh, hometown and work, whatever it is, whatever instruction that Swami would give. And they would wait for Swami to give that instructions and that's why they used to be given the term the waiting boys, right? They would be waiting for Swami's instructions. So effectively, they would not have a job, there would be no earning and because of that, they will not be supporting their family monetarily or even physically being there and supporting their family. So this period of waiting could go on for few weeks to few months to even few years. And sometimes it could be very, very long. Sometimes Swami will not give a job so easily and that's why this period goes on for such a long time. But that does not mean that Swami will not permit these boys to stay. Sometimes Swami would even hint that he's actually happy with their sadhana and patience. In fact, Swami would 
call these waiting boys for innumerable uh, interviews and whenever Swami has some important work, Swami would call them. Recently, we were uh, remembering late Bharat Atna Atal Bihari Vajpayee. Right? When he had come here, when he was the Prime Minister, he was staying in what we call the Srinivasa Guest House, which is there on the way to General Hospital. Right? When he had come and he had stayed, I think, for a couple of days, that time Swami had called all of these waiting boys who had finished their courses and waiting for Swami's instructions. Swami had given them the duty of taking care of the serving of the Prime Minister. So sometimes Swami would do this and in many ways, if not even telling directly, Swami would give them indication that he is happy with them being around. Right? So at such times, some of the elders might would raise this question every now and then that aren't these students failing in their duties towards their parents? The parents have educated them, the parents have given them this good education and opportunity. Isn't it their due to now go back and serve their parents? Isn't it adharma in that sense? And the students themselves would, you know, feel this way that, you know, is this adharma? Because Swami is very, very particular about doing one's duty, being dharmic. So is this adharma in, in any way? And there was this one teacher who was telling that how can you even think of this as adharma? Swami has permitted you to stay. Will Swami ever permit anybody to do any adharma of any kind? You have told Swami that Swami, whatever you tell us, we will do. Can Swami permit you to do adharma in His name? And that's precisely Arjuna's predicament here. He has gone to Arjuna, he has gone to Krishna and Krishna has come on his behalf to the battlefield. Krishna has negotiated on the behalf of the Pandavas. Krishna has come back and said that we have tried out everything, probably this is the only option left. Arjuna is forgetting that it is Krishna who is, in a sense, approved of all of this. He is in the forefront of all of this. Can Krishna, can the Lord himself permit a bad action to be done in that sense? So Arjuna seems to have forgotten it completely. Who is the person who is riding his chariot? Who is he next to? And maybe as readers, maybe as people who are reading this entire chapter, maybe even we could get carried away by you know, Arjuna's Kripaya Vishtam, Arjuna being overwhelmed by compassion, might even overwhelm us. We might also forget that, yeah, man, I mean, Arjuna seems to be very, very right. He seems to be telling the right things. And this is not right. This seems to be a dharma and so noble of Arjuna. Even we might forget that this is the mistake Arjuna is doing. Yes, the predicament that Arjuna is in, we might also be in many, many situations, right? We might also be in similar situations where we are not able to clearly see what is right and wrong or we have discriminated what is right and when we are about to do what is right, we might think that, is this really right? Have I really taken the right decision? So in that sense, we might be in similar predicaments. And the essence of the Bhagavad Gita is meant to understand those situations, right? But if in any situation... If there is a direct instruction from Swami through an inner direction or let's say Swami has told you in a dream and you're absolutely certain that this is Swami's instruction, I think there should be no dilemma at all. Because once it is a direction, it is a command from the Lord, there should be no discrimination after that. All discrimination is only in the absence of that direct communication from Swami, right? And that is the mistake Arjuna is making. So we as readers might also forget this mistake that Arjuna is making because his arguments are so brilliant, right? He's not an ordinary person. As I mentioned last time, 
he is a person who is so well versed in dharma he understands how dharma works and how dharma is protected and how dharma is passed on from generation to generation he seems to be very well versed in that and we might also get carried away so vyasa the author of the mahabharata and the bhagavad gita probably chooses to remind us and that's why the next verse starts with bhagavan uvacha to remind us that it is bhagwan who is next to him it is not any ordinary charioteer an ordinary king or an ordinary prince it is the lord and lord will never direct you or lead you onto the wrong path and that's what vyasa reminds us he starts the next verse with bhagwan uvacha and he will be using this throughout the bhagavad gita many many times wherever krishna speaks it is it says bhagwan uvacha so that we don't forget that these are the words of bhagwan himself and that is why this is bhagavad gita it is not a name which is given without a meaning right these are all the instructions of the lord himself and that's how the second verse of the second chapter begins and krishna begins to speak and what does he speak let's listen to that the second verse and i'll give you the meaning after that shri bhagavan uvacha kutastva kashmalam idam ಭಗವಾನ್ and finally krishna speaks and when he does he shows absolutely no sympathy to arjuna he doesn't say are you papu arjuna how sad you're feeling so sorry you you're crying he doesn't pat his back why are you crying is there anything but he scorns him he kind of rebukes him he says kutastva kashmalam idam that's what he asks from where has this dirt come in you the word kashmalam means impurity or dirt or it also means faint heartedness or pusillanimity he says where has this kashmalam come from you right whichever way you interpret or translate this word kashmalam it means weak heartedness at, at the same time it also means some form of dirt or impurity in thinking so krishna asks kutastva kashmalam idam from where has this impure idea impure perception or faint heartedness weak heartedness come in you and he does not give it any respectability whatever arjuna has been telling all this while it seemed to be a wonderful discourse in dharma and a monologue of a person who is so deeply noble but krishna does not approve of it he shows no sympathy he does not give this understanding that he has expressed through these verses any kind of respect and he goes on to say vishame samupasthitam and it has come in this hour of crisis you know whatever arjuna has been thinking is probably not wrong or bad in that sense but everything has a time and space and some you would say there's a place time and circumstance for everything and this does not seem to be that and at this moment of crisis when you're in the middle of the battlefield the battle is about to begin everybody is about to pounce on you and kill you and in this moment it is not the right moment for being overwhelmed by compassion and that's what he says vishame samupasthitam not at this time 
kutastvakashmalam idam vishame samupasthitam he says from where is this impurity come in this hour of crisis this is not the time for that swami had once said in a discourse people say that compassion is always good but i say even compassion can be bad these are swami's words and swami went on to explain misplaced compassion is always bad see a mother should be very patient and compassionate and loving right but at the time when let's say a mother is disciplining a child there should be no place for compassion there or let us say that when a teacher is invigilating an exam and the student who is writing the exam is a student who he or she is himself or herself taught and let's say the student is struggling with an answer in the course of that exam and she sees that the student is struggling at that moment the teacher cannot come and become compassionate and say ayo papam the student is struggling come let me help him or let me help her there is no place for compassion in that place that's what krishna is saying this is not the time for such self introspection that hour has passed this is not the time this is the time of crisis this is the time of action this is the time for strategizing and taking part in the battle this is not the time for kripaya vishtam to be overwhelmed by compassion that's what krishna tells arjuna and he says that you know the hour has passed when at this time it is making its appearance this is an inappropriate time krishna says i will not call this kind of rumination as paraya kripaya as sanjaya puts it he says it's supreme compassion of arjuna right that's the phrase that sanjaya used to describe it he says paraya kripaya but krishna says that i am not going to call this paraya kripaya i am going to call this kashmalam he says this is filth this is dirt this is faint heartedness this is impure thinking this is pusillanimity he says i do not agree with this and krishna is also upset that arjuna did not raise all these points before right he said he could have asked me any of this at the time when we were deliberating about the war and you know krishna was always with the pandavas he says this is not the time to raise all these questions you could have asked me all this before not after bringing me to the battlefield like this in swami's gita vahini swami writes krishna tells arjuna you woke me up from the sleep and you drag me to the battlefield and then you ask all these questions that's how swami writes it you know uh, we know that that's how uh, duryodhana and arjuna go to krishna and take favors for the battle right so swami says you woke me up from my sleep and you drag me in a chariot you make me drive the chariot you make me take care of your horses you make me do all of this for you you bring me to the middle of the battlefield and now you start asking all these questions and now you talk about dharma he says this is not the time this is not the time for such crisis let us say that you know i'll give you an example suppose we are buying some equipment in the studio or for that matter i think even in your workplace you can think of that there's always a few steps that need to be followed if you want to make some procurement like in studio we always follow that right we first have to go and tell the administration or the management that we need this particular equipment a mixer or a monitor or a speaker or whatever it is we go and tell them that look we need this particular equipment and then the management will tell us all right you get us a few quotes then we'll decide then we'll go about making a few calls sending a few emails to vendors and then we get a few quotes then we'll present it before the management and then they'll say okay let's go with this particular quote i think this happens everywhere right then we go to the vendor we give the specification we procure the item and let's say it comes to the point where we are supposed to pay the vendor and at that time i'm taking the bills and i go to the management and let's say the management now asks do we really need this equipment or uh, you know i think we should have done a cost benefit analysis 
or maybe we could have waited for a few months the next version of the same equipment would have come what would be her reaction to that you would say boss all these questions you should have asked me when i came with the proposal not now when i have already bought the equipment and i'm going to pay the vendor this is not the time for see these questions the questions are not themselves wrong questioning is not wrong but the timing of that questioning is wrong right similarly krishna is telling arjuna this is not the time for you to wonder like this krishna is telling arjuna boss this is not the time this is not the time that you need to ask me these questions because you were prepared to fight all these people have assembled here right because you were prepared i sent my battle i mean again that conversation between duryodhana krishna and arjuna is because of you i sent my army and krishna says i have come all the way from dwaraka and you know it's it's a long long way away dwaraka is in the western end of the subcontinent he says i have come all the way from dwaraka and my narayani sena has come of course they have not come to fight with me but against the pandavas but nevertheless they have come all the way and all of these people have assembled here you cannot speak like this now and that's what krishna says and then krishna uses three sharp adjectives to describe the actions of arjuna he says this is anarya jushtam aswargyam and akirtikaram he uses three very very strong words anarya jushtam aswargyam and akirtikaram what does anarya jushtam means arya means a man who is cultured and who knows what is right and wrong who behaves appropriately who knows the right thing who knows the right mannerisms probably in the modern parlance we would call him a gentleman right and arya is supposed to be a person who is cultured a cultured man a gentleman is called an arya and anarya is the opposite of that the antonym of arya is anarya one who is not cultured one who is uncouth one who does not know right and wrong who does not know where to speak what and the word jushta means practices so anarya jushta means practices that are of a person who is uncultured right so krishna is calling arjuna's behavior anarya jushta he says this is not what a cultured knowledgeable person would do but this is that of an uncivilized uncouth person don't think your approach is superior noble and advanced that's what krishna is telling arjuna don't think that you are very sophisticated in your thinking this is anarya jushtam this is actions of an uncouth person uncultured person a person who does not know what to do when as i said his timing of these questions are so bad right it is like asking do we really need this when you are about to pay for the equipment that you have already bought right you have already come to the battlefield you are doing the most inappropriate questioning at the most inappropriate time and he says this is anarya jushta this is not what a cultured knowledgeable person would do but this is that of an uncivilized person and he says that i thought that you're supposed to be probably the anarya jushtam the antonym for that is arya shreshta arya shreshta means among gentlemen he is the gentleman if you could put it that way among all these cultured people the most cultured or the one to be looked up upon or the one to be held up as an example krishna says i thought you're an arya shreshta but you are behaving like an anarya you are showing behavior that is anarya jushta and is krishna is giving absolutely no respect whatsoever to the words of arjuna arjuna thought that krishna is going to give him a pat on his back but krishna is giving him a slap on his wrist and he is saying that this is not right this is anarya jushta and then he calls arjuna's behavior aswargyam it is not something that will give you a place in heaven swarga means heaven 
aswargyam it is not something that will give you a place in heaven arjuna argued that one who causes such massive confusion in society would go to hell right that is one of the arguments that arjuna was placing in front of krishna so discriminating and withdrawing from such actions is supposed to be noble gesture right that's what he was saying that if i do this i'll land up in hell so the corollary of that is if i discriminate now if i don't do this if i run away from this place if i give up fighting at this moment then i will be suitable to be you know sent to heaven that's the unspoken word of arjuna but krishna is telling him no this is aswargyam your actions are aswargyam they are actions which will not lead you to heaven don't even entertain the idea that this is noble and as a reward for this you will be given a place in heaven he says this is anarya jushtam this is aswargyam and finally krishna describes it as akirtikaram that which will lead to infamy he says it will not make you a very popular person among the other kshatriyas or among the other people in bharatvarsha he says this it is akirtikaram do you think that people will celebrate the decision of yours no you will be laughed at why is krishna saying this why is krishna calling the choice that arjuna is about to make as akirtikaram there are two ways of looking at you know krishna's initial sharp words to arjuna especially in this verse one he's trying to hurt arjuna's pride and wake him out of his misconceptions right because arjuna is a kshatriya he's a warrior and for a kshatriya pride and reputation is the most important it's more important than anything else it's more important than even one's own life right and that is why krishna is trying to tell him that this is going to lead to bad reputation people are going to speak ill of you and he's ridiculing arjuna is calling that you're behaving like an anarya an uncultured person because clearly krishna is trying to prick that kshatriya pride of arjuna so that he will wake up from this uh, delusion that he's caught up in but the deeper meaning of this particular adjective that krishna uses akirtikaram it means that one is doing actions that are not worthy of being remembered not worthy of being spoken about highly swami says this in i think the first chapter of premvani it is there in the first chapter of premvani those who are following the premvani satsang will know this in the very first chapter swami says this that good character alone obtains lasting fame and is remembered right the society remembers only those of good character and swami goes on to explain he gives the examples of vivekananda ramakrishna paramahamsa in fact in another discourse swami beautifully says that uh, you know the land of bengal is supposed to be filled with intellectuals swami says there so many scientists there so many musicians and so many great scholars who came from there but who are those who are remembered today we remember ramakrishna paramahamsa we remember vivekananda because they are men of character because a society finds worthy of remembering only those who are upholders of character right swami says that so in this premvani chapter swami says that only good character obtains lasting fame and is remembered and then swami quickly says but you may wonder is everyone who is popular in the society today people of good character and swami explains see the fashion and trends in a society constantly keep changing but those values that are eternally celebrated will always remain the same an eternal society an eternal which will celebrate and give eternal fame will always be the same values 
And we can see that even now, even now if we look around and see what is happening in society, you know, be it uh, the corruption which we see or, you know, the latest, the Me Too movement or the abuse of power, in a sense, we all know that it exists in society, right? We, it's, it's not coming as a surprise to us. We all know that it exists in society. But when we see even people who are very, very famous are guilty of such acts, we look down upon them. It does not matter that they are people who have achieved so much. It does not matter that they are people who held a lot of respect in society. No, the moment we associate such people with acts which are unacceptable, immediately we look down upon them. It's because however the society's overall morality might fall, it still knows what is right and wrong. A society never forgets that, right? So even if famous people are associated with these acts which we know are wrong, immediately it leads to akirtikaram, infamy happens, right? So that's because the society always holds high the same eternal values, honesty and straightforwardness. In that sense, they may not be rewarded monetarily, right? Being honest might not be the most lucrative option. It might, it might not make you the richest person in society or even in your street. But that does not mean that people look down upon honesty or straightforwardness. Honesty and straightforwardness will always be celebrated. It may not be rewarded in that sense, but a society will always remember and regard honesty, straightforwardness, goodness, right? That's why Swami would say, if one were to get a good name in society, if one were to live in such a manner that he or she gets a good name in society rather than merely earning money or earning respect or fear in that sense, not not just respect, but people having fear of you. If you strive to earn all of these things, instead of that, if you strive to earn a good name in society, Swami says, automatically your life will be regulated and you will lead a dharmic life. So here Krishna is calling Arjuna's actions akirtikaram, which means it is fundamentally wrong. Yes, on one hand, he's trying to hurt that Kshatriya pride by saying that People will laugh at you. People will look at you and say, look at Arjuna. He's the one who has run away from the battlefield. And uh, as one of the uh, pracharakas of uh, the Gita, one who has explained the Gita, he was saying that imagine all of these people who have assembled for the battle in the Kaurava side will start having their own stories. And he says that, who knows, tomorrow one of the soldiers might say that, you know, Arjuna ran away from the battlefield. You think, do you know why he got scared? Because he saw me. I was standing right in the front, Arjuna saw me and ran away. Any kind of stories can start off. So, one hand, Krishna is trying to hurt the Kshatriya upright by saying that nobody is going to talk highly of you because of this decision that you made. It will only lead to infamy. But the deeper thing that Arjuna is being told by Krishna is, this is Akirtikaram because it is fundamentally wrong. That which will lead to Kirti will be that which is eternally valued in society. And what you're doing is fundamentally wrong and that's why it is Akirtikaram. And why is it Anarja Jushtam, Aswargyam and Akirtikaram? Why is actions like this? We only know that Krishna is giving this description, but why is it? Why is Arjuna's understanding wrong? All the explanation which he gave, which seems so splendid, why is it wrong? Well, that is what Krishna is going to explain in the chapters that are going to follow. But what is the flaw of Arjuna's approach? He is going to be explained in ways which are going to be very, very applicable to us. Because as we go through, we will see that these are the very same mistakes we do. But we are so well-versed in doing mistakes that we don't even realize that they are mistakes. But when we see Krishna's explanation of why 
Arjuna's actions are that of an uncultured person, Anarya Jushtam, and why they are Aswargyam, not leading to a place in heaven, and why they are Akirtikaram, leading to infamy, we will realize that many of these mistakes we also do in our everyday life, and it's an opportunity for us to correct ourselves, right? For now, it does appear that Krishna is hitting Arjuna where it hurts most, right? That's what it appears. And he's attacking his pride and self-respect. In fact, it is going to be attacked even more as we are going to see in the next verse, which is the third verse of the second chapter. We'll listen to that. I'll give you the meaning and we'll discuss about it. क्षुद्रम हृदय दौर्बल्यम O Partha, yield not to unmanliness. This does not befit you. O scorcher of foes, arise, giving up the petty weakness of the heart. Krishna tells Arjuna, don't behave like a klaibya, a person from the neutral gender. That's supposed to be probably something which is going to hurt Arjuna the most, he calls him Klaibya. He says, you're behaving like a eunuch. He's saying, this is a behavior of an important person. It doesn't befit you. What a rebuke it is, he says, you are a Klaibya. Well, it's not that Krishna is speaking low of the neutral gender. It's not to be meant like that, that there are a class of people to be rebuked at and using them as an example is a rebuke. But what Krishna is saying here is much, much more subtle than that. A woman has her own strengths. A man too has his own strengths. A woman has her own beauty. A man too has his own beauty. But it does not add beauty to a woman to act like a man and a man to act like a woman. And that is when there is a confusion of gender and that is what Krishna is referring to here. This is a moment for manliness. Arjuna, you're a Kshatriya, you're a warrior, you're a man, but you're behaving like a woman now. You are crying like a woman. Crying is not bad. Crying like a woman is not a derogatory thing. But at this moment, this is not the behavior that you need to express. And that is why he says, Klaibya, Krishna is telling Arjuna, this is the time for manliness. And he calls Arjuna Parantapa, destroyer of the foes. Compassion itself is not wrong. Crying and breaking down like this itself is not wrong. But this is not the place for your compassion. This is a weakness of the heart. Hridaya Dhaurbalyam, he says. If we look at from that point of view, what is really bravery? A bully is not a brave person. A person who is bullying and troubling others, we don't call that person a brave person. No, Duryodhana was a bully. Ravana was a bully for that matter. But Hanuman, we always speak of a person who is brave, right? So what is that difference which makes a person a bully and what makes a person a brave? When one does what is supposed to be done, when one does what is right without hesitation, that is bravery, right? Arjuna is afraid to do his duty and so Krishna is telling him, give up Hridaya Daurbalyam, the weakness of the heart that you are displaying now. Right? He is not telling that you get up and you become a bully and go and finish all these people. You have to show bravery because this is the right thing to do. Trying to chicken out of the moment because you are scared to face it. They say our bravery depends on who is in front of us. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on who is in front of us. If the person is bigger bully than us, then we are scared, right? Krishna is saying that should not be the thing. Your bravery should always come 
should stem from your righteousness. Are you right? Then you be brave. If you're wrong, you should be scared. As we saw in the first chapter, Duryodhana was scared. He says, you know, the two words, player words which Vyasa used, where he says that uh, my army seems to be sufficient and he says that their army seems to be insufficient, right? But he uses a word which could mean insufficient and sufficient, right? Because as we said, Duryodhana was really scared. Duryodhana was worried. He knows that what he's doing is wrong, so he was scared. So Krishna is telling him that don't have Hridaya Daurbalyam because what you're going to do is right. This is not a place where you can show cowardice, right? And there's another reason why Krishna tells Arjuna, don't be a Klaibya, don't be a eunuch. You know, during the time when they spend in the forest in exile, they're supposed to be in the forest for 12 years and they're supposed to live for one year in what is called the Agnya Davasa, which means the clause which they agree upon when they go for the Vanavasa is for 12 years, they'll be in the forest. And for one year, they have to live incognito. Nobody should know that these are the Pandavas and this is Draupadi. And they should live one full year like that. And if at all they get caught in the process of that one year, they will have to again go to the forest for 12 years. And in fact, that is one of the reasons why the battle happens. Where towards the end of that one year, the Kauravas realize and figure out where the Pandavas are. They are living in the Virata kingdom, the Matsya kingdom of Virata king. But according to some of the calculations, it shows that actually the Agnyadavasa ends by then. But Duryodhana does not accept. He feels that we have caught them during the Agnyadavasa and so they deserve to go back to the forest. And that's one of the points of contention where things go bad and eventually it comes down to the point of the war. The point about the Agnyadavasa is during that one year, it is Arjuna who actually takes on a name called Brihannala and he lives the life of a eunuch in the Matsya kingdom. He teaches dance and music to the princess of the Matsya kingdom. Because as I said, he always had interest in fine arts. So he takes up this role of Brihannala, a eunuch. And again, there's, there's another curse which leads him to live like that, where as we know, he is the son of Lord Indra. And once when he goes to offer his obeisance to Lord Indra, there is this damsel in Indra's court, I think Urvashi, she falls for Arjuna and she says that, you know, she would like to have a son through Arjuna. And Arjuna says, if you want a son, you take me. You are like my mother. I cannot look at you as my lover or my wife. You take me as your son if you want a son like me. And she gets very, very irritated by that because she is supposed to be a damsel and no mortal can resist her beauty. And here is this great warrior who resists her beauty and who says that, you know, I cannot uh, submit to your desires. So she gets very, very upset and she curses Arjuna that you will become a Klaibya, you will become a eunuch. And Indra intercedes and he says, no, it is no mistake of his. In fact, he has shown a behavior which is worthy of, uh, you know, respect and worthy of appreciating. You should not have cursed him like that. So then Urvashi modifies the curse and she says, okay, you will live as a Klaibya for one year. And then Indra blesses that this is not going to be a curse for you. This will be a blessing. See, that's the beautiful inner meaning of that story. One might wonder that why should Arjuna be cursed? He was actually behaving very well. He's behaving very appropriately. Why should he be cursed? When you do the right thing, even a curse will become a blessing. And that's what happens in Arjuna's case. That one year Agnyadavasa, he is able to use that curse which was given to him. He becomes a eunuch. He becomes a Klaibya. And he gets through that one year. Right? So Krishna is telling your Brihannala days are over, Arjuna. Wake up now. This is not the time to be a 
Clydia, the Brhanala episode is over. You've played that role. You've played it very well. You've played it wonderfully. But now is not the time to resurface Brhanala. You have to wake up now and you have to fight. Right? So clearly, Krishna is showing absolutely no sympathy to Arjuna. In no uncertain terms, he has expressed to Arjuna that he does not agree with the arguments that Arjuna has been giving. And hearing these words, Arjuna very, very vehemently he reacts. In the previous verse which we came across, Kashmalam, Akirtikaram, Aswargyam and uh, Anadyajushtam. Right? These four adjectives which Krishna uses in the previous verse, to us it might look like you know, these are very harsh words that Krishna is using against Arjuna who seems to be displaying nothing but noble qualities and noble nature. These seems to be very hard and it looks like Krishna is behaving very rudely right, to uh, Arjuna. You would expect Krishna to show some empathy and sympathy and if not agree with Arjuna, at least explain a little more calmly and explain a little more patiently. But Krishna is flaring up in the very first verse. He's calling him all these words. He calls him Klaibya, he calls him Anarya, he, your actions are Akirtikaram, Maswargyam. You know, that is the beauty. Only Swami can tell us what happens in Arjuna's mind. We can only think of what happens in my mind. I can put myself in Arjuna's place and I can imagine if Swami were to come and use these words against me, I will get really, really angry, right? If you're trying to show your goodness to Swami and this is how Swami reacts, it's going to put you off. But only Swami can tell us what was the effect of these words which appear otherwise very, very rude in Arjuna's mind, right? And uh, Swami explains that in Gita Vaini. He says, when these four words were spoken to Arjuna, they had a magical effect on Arjuna. Swami says, and I quote, the thick cloud of ignorance that had overwhelmed Arjuna started to melt a little. The tamas that had made him forget the truth was removed. Rajoguna returned and Arjuna found words to ask. He asked, how? That term, how, reveals much. It shows that the Gita expounds not merely on what has to be done, but even on how it has to be done. Unquote. This is a very, very beautiful insight that Swami is giving. Right? It appears, as I said, like very, very harsh words to be spoken to Arjuna. It appears that Arjuna is going to react vehemently and that's what he's going to do too. But Swami is revealing the inner workings of Arjuna's mind. Arjuna recognizes that his thinking was wrong in some way. But he wants to know how he is wrong, right? That's what Arjuna is going to ask and that's what Swami is saying here. Arjuna is asking how? How am I wrong? And he is not only asking how is he wrong, but he is going to ask what am I supposed to do? And he is going to ask how am I supposed to do that? And one of the most important aspects of the Bhagavad Gita is not only what you have to do, but when you have to do, what you have to do, how you have to do. I know that sounded really, really confusing. It means your learning does not stop when you understand what has to be done at what time. What is more important is how you go about doing it. With what attitude do you do that? With what perceptions you do that? With what bhavam you go on doing even the right actions, right? One level of doing actions is to discriminate what is right and wrong based on Desha Kala Paristiti, the time, place and circumstance. Apart from that, you should also know with what attitude and with what bhavam and feeling those actions have to be performed. That is what Swami is saying here. 
The Bhagavad Gita does not only tell you what to do, but it also tells you how to do. Arjuna is not being told that you are wrong and Krishna is not going to stop with that. Arjuna is asking how, tell me how am I wrong and Krishna is going to explain to Arjuna how his thinking is wrong. So both of these things are very very important to us. Why is Arjuna's thinking wrong which seems to be so right? Right? When we go through those verses, it seems to be so right and noble and perfect. Why is it wrong? How is it wrong? And Krishna is going to be asked by Arjuna, so tell me Krishna, what am I supposed to do? Krishna will tell him what is to be done, but Krishna will also tell him how it is to be done. And that is what is going to make this thing very, very important for us to look at. Probably we'll take one last verse, the fourth verse, and I'll quickly give you the meaning and explain that and probably we'll conclude with that for today. Arjuna Uvacha Katham Bhishma Maham Sankhe Dronancha Madhusudana Ishubhif Pratiyotsyami Arjuna said, How, O Madhusudana, how shall I fight in the battle with arrows against Bhishma and Drona, who are fit to be worshipped, O destroyer of enemies? When you're talking about the Arya Jushta, the opposite of Anarya Jushta is Arya Jushta, the ways of a cultured person. One of the most important aspects of a cultured person or cultured living is giving respect to elders, right? And Swami would be very, very particular about this. Swami would never tolerate a youngster, especially Swami's student, speaking very harshly or rudely to a teacher. Even if that elder is wrong, this is what Swami would say, that even if that person is wrong, you are not permitted to speak rudely or harshly to that person. Disrespectfully speaking to an elder in Swami's eyes, is supposed to be a very, very bad thing to do and you could be pulled up and you will face the consequences very bitterly, right? So when Krishna says that your actions are anarya jushtam, uncultured, Arjuna says, it is wrong to disrespect elders like Bhishma and Drona who are puja arhav, who are worthy of worship. Even in a verbal argument, even in a verbal argument, it is wrong to talk disrespectfully to them. They are so worthy of worship. And you expect that I should fire arrows at them? Arjuna is asking Krishna, can't you see the point I'm making? Right? Because Arjuna is woken up. Till now, he was actually sinking to his chair. He was becoming sad. He was becoming low. Right? That's what Swami was saying, that the clouds of tamas have parted and he actually springs into rajas. Swami would often say this, before you go to the state of sattva, you have to discard the state of tamas and you have to come into the state of rajas. Activity and passion, that is the first step before you step into the state of sattva. So, till now Arjuna was thinking and he was saying, oh, my Gandhiwa is slipping and I'm going to slump into my chair. I don't feel like fighting and he's literally crawling up in his seat. But suddenly he springs up when Krishna uses all of these harsh words. Arjuna is asking Krishna, can't you see my point? Can't you see the point I'm making, Krishna? This is not me being scared or suffering from cold feet. This is a very, very different scenario. That's what Arjuna is trying to tell Krishna. Why are you not able to appreciate what I am going through? And very, very smartly, Arjuna calls Krishna Madhusudana and Arisudana. What is so smart about calling him Madhusudana and Arisudana? Madhusudana, as we saw in an earlier verse, it means 
one who killed the demon madhu and arisudana means one who vanquishes one's enemies so arjuna is hinting see you also kill demons and enemies only your madhusudana and arisudana but who are these people in front of me they are elders gurus my family my friends he says these are not demons and enemies right these are my friends these are my family this is my guru they are the people who are responsible for what i am today and that's why he smartly throws in these names of krishna he says you are madhusudana you are arisudana don't you understand what is making me hesitate is not because i'm scared it is because these people are my own people worthy of respect and worship puja arha they are worthy of being worshiped they are in front of me but arjuna has probably forgotten that krishna who is standing in front of him is one who punished his own uncle kamsa and his own cousin sushupala when they did the wrong things right maybe one way it is to set an example to arjuna in the battlefield at this point in kurukshetra krishna displayed his adherence to dharma in this manner by even punishing those just like how arjuna said he said mathulan my my uncles are there my maternal uncles are there and krishna would say even i have killed my maternal uncle because he has done something wrong and so nobody is worthy of giving this advice to arjuna than krishna krishna has made himself even in that avatar more worthy of giving that advice to arjuna and that is the beauty so arjuna the poor fellow is completely trapped there is no way he is going to escape from this but we will have to wait till next week when we continue this conversation between krishna and arjuna of course this is swami speaking to all of us and as we go through the second chapter more and more some of the most profound vedantic truths are going to be spoken of especially in this second chapter it's a very very important chapter the jnana yoga is expounded sankhya yoga is expounded in this chapter but we'll come to that thank you all for joining me i most humbly offer this effort at swami's lotus feet i'll meet you all again next week for the next episode of the geeta series a try on pilgrimage